You can subscribe to my Substack and get early access to this show by way of truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the first show of the year. I'm Kevin Barrett. I didn't do a show on Christmas Eve. I didn't do a show on New Year's Eve, but we're back tonight on Revolution.radio talking about the hot topic of, well, COVID and vaccines. What else is there to talk about? What else has anybody ever talked about for the past couple of years? Oh, man. Uh, but <laughs> looks like a, another year of COVID panic over the uh, the mild variant that's uh, spreading so fast that pretty much everybody has it or is going to have it real soon. Oh, well. Um, and our, how, much, how much of this has been avoidable? The uh, pro-vax people say, oh, if we just vaccinate everybody immediately, there would be no more COVID. We'd solve the problem overnight. But it's those darn anti-vaxxers who refuse to get vaccinated who are causing all the problems. But uh, if you actually look carefully at the data, it suggests that may not be the case. Another argument that strikes me as a little bit more credible holds that if early treatment were applied and it was easy to get these treatment protocols and the ivermectin and other items that make up the protocol. And if everybody started using this stuff, if not prophylactically, at least as soon as they felt the slightest scratch at the back of the throat or the first faint uh, need to sneeze, that the deaths from COVID would be way, way, way down from where they are. And somebody who's advocated that point of view is Joel Hirschhorn. He's a Ph.D. metallurgist and actually an expert on a whole bunch of things. He even became an expert on the demolition of the World Trade Center buildings on 9-11 after I asked him to. And here he is back with a, a great article, Praise the Lord and Pass the Ivermectin. And this follows in the line of the issues he explored in his fantastic book, Pandemic Blunder, Fauci and uh, Public Health Blocked Early Home COVID Treatment. That book anticipated some of the revelations in RFK Jr.'s bestseller by a full year. So Joel Hirshhorn is always a man ahead of his time. <laughs> Hopefully he's on the show by now, or at least on yes, time. Yes, I am. Hey, there he is. Welcome, Joel. How are you doing? Buddy? Good to have you. Hi. Back. Good to be with you. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you're, as, I, as I mentioned, we as well stress this point for our audience. Your book, Pandemic Blunder, uh, was it, it caught a lot of the stuff about Fauci that I was just recently rereading in RFK Jr.'s book. Uh, so you're not going to sue RFK Jr. for plagiarism, I hope. Uh, I wish I could, <laughs> but I'm sure he's given me no credit either. He probably never even cited my book. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that there could be some independent lines of research at work here, but the fact is that your your book did uh, expose a lot of the same information, and it came out a year earlier. So that's uh, that's very impressive, and so that's one re I told Ron Unz, who was blown away by RFK Jr.'s book, it came as a revelation to him, uh, and even he's not 100% sure on some of these issues, he has to admit that RFK Jr. is a very serious guy, etc., 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 and, uh, you know, my reaction was a little more muted. I said, Ron, I, I mean, I kind of knew this stuff because I've been talking to people like Joel Hirshhorn and Merrill Nass and others for, you know, for a couple of years right. now. So anyway, I, mean, I really appreciate um, hearing this from you early on so I could stay ahead of the curve. And I'm sure my listeners do, too. Uh, so so you're, you're stressing this point that you've been making now for quite some time, which is that the complete lack of interest in early treatment using cheap repurposed medicine may be responsible for a fairly high percentage of these COVID deaths. Absolutely. No doubt in my mind about it. And I'm a true believer. I take ivermectin now. My wife does it also as a prophylactic. 
and uh, I'm, you know, I follow the data, have followed it for now for two years, and uh, I'm convinced that the data proves that ivermectin works. And by the way, you know, my 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 own latest revelation was I started to look into why these people are dying in hospital ICUs of of, of what we call late stage COVID. Okay. And uh, I got into this because I was watching these uh, court battles go on, as you probably know. Uh, there's a lawyer, particularly one lawyer around the country, fighting these situations where the hospitals have refused uh, to give deathbed uh, patients ivermectin, even when their families bring it in. The hospitals refuse to give it to, I'm, I'm talking severely ill patients that have a 10 or 20% chance of living at the best, uh, usually they're in ICUs for many, many weeks. They are dying, and the hospital still won't give ivermectin. And so I did a deep dive into the medical research, and I discovered, my God, there was research going back several years showing that ivermectin had some sort of unusual property that it would work on the lungs and uh, deal with lung problems and breathing problems and pneumonia, and that research was out there. But nobody was paying much attention to it. Everyone, even me, we were focusing on uh, using ivermectin for our early stage, uh, you know, uh, viral infection control. But it turns out it works for late stage COVID. Okay. Really? Really? Yeah. I've heard a couple of anecdotal reports of that. But then uh, from what I saw of the studies out there, it didn't seem to support it as much as for the early stage. No, absolutely. I mean, actually, I was on, in a discussion with Peter McCullough. I'm sure you know the name, uh, yeah. the famous, uh, and he agreed with me. He, because he, he follows the research, you know, even better than I do. And the research is solid. There is a solid explanation why ivermectin works for late stage COVID. Again, on lung problems. And that's why these people are dying in hospitals. All of them who are dying in hospitals. And usually in ICUs for many weeks, it's it's late stage COVID. It's a lung problem, uh, a breathing problem. They put them on uh, on machines. You know, they intubate them. They they give them. They put them into comas most of the time. In fact, so it, it's just an awful situation with hospitals. And what I pointed out in that last article, I mean, I've been uh, uh, an executive volunteer at a major hospital for over ten years. And and one of the things that I'm in heavily involved in all that time is called patient-centered care. And what's what's amusing to me now the hypocrisy of hospitals. They all say they they push and believe in patient-centered care. Well, if they did, they would be you know giving in to the desires of patients and their families to try the ivermectin when nothing else is working. Nothing else is working. The hospital protocols. I want to emphasize, Kevin. Do not save lives when people are in that late stage COVID. They essentially all die. Yeah, the the hospitals have gotten a reputation as kind of the the place where the the late stage COVID patients go to die. Yes, and and, uh, and the stuff that people are getting in the hospitals, like the remdesivir, not oh, only doesn't seem to help, but some people are arguing that that's actually making it worse. Sort of like mm. those those early AIDS drugs that Fauci's friends and Big Pharma made fortunes on. Uh, it turns out they were killing people not with the same Absolutely. symptoms as AIDS. And so it, Rem- it might be a rerun of that. Yeah, remdesivir, we have there's lots of data out there. Not only doesn't it work, it actually causes lots of serious 
uh, organ failures, you know, kidney and, and, and whatnot, liver, whatever. It, it's a very dangerous drug. It doesn't work. They do give it to these uh, late-stage uh, COVID patients, and it's useless. All the hospitals, you know, they're all making tons of money, of course. They keep these these patients in ICUs for four, six, eight weeks, or even more. So imagine the hospital bills for those people in ICUs for all those many, many weeks. It's crazy. And you mentioned that one of the reasons that ivermectin might be helpful, even in the late stages of COVID, is that it has anti-inflammatory properties. And, and that, that is the chief reason. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it, yeah, just to be clear, Kevin, it works at in the early stage mostly as an antiviral, but the research that I'm saying I, I, I dug into shows it's the anti-inflammatory property of ivermectin that works to save the lives of late-stage COVID patients. Interesting. You know, I, I've done some research on the uh, the field of, of the, these uh, various kinds of health and science researchers looking at anti-inflammatory products in general. And, yeah. you know, there was a sort of a post-aspirin, post-ibuprofen revolution, and they came out with new generations of anti-inflammatories because they discovered that a whole lot of the worst health problems around today uh, including especially autoimmune problems, and then things associated with aging as well, uh, oh, yeah. are largely caused by imbalances in the inflammation process. The inflammation yes. is necessary for healing, but as you get older, and also if you have these autoimmune types issue, of issues, that process will happen in an unbalanced way, and then it can, the body's immune system can kind of turn against itself, and inflammation can become uh, the the bigger problem than whatever was causing the inflammation. Uh, like, you know, I had Lyme disease, and that was one of the issues with that. So uh, there is this this whole field of research devoted to the possible very serious benefits of anti-inflammatories. It's believed that a lot of spices like turmeric, which if taken with black pepper, is a very good anti-inflammatory, works better than every ibuprofen. Day. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah, so that's probably why you're still in such good shape. I mean, you're you're a, you're a bit older than I am even, which is saying something. I'm, I, listen, Kevin, I'm 82, <laughs> and I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, well, your, your brain inflammation hasn't uh, killed off your synapses from firing, because they're still firing pretty fast. <laughs> so, so that uh, strikes me as, as plausible, that the, especially with covid it seems that there's the, the body's uh, immune system and the in, inflammation process are, are sort of you know turn, going haywire, and it, it's the body is yeah. turning against itself. And so something that could modulate that in the way that anti-inflammatories can modulate that process might be helpful. So that that makes intuitive sense. But I, I hadn't heard about this before I read your article. Uh, where, where did yeah. you find and, out about this? Well, you know, I, again, I, and the more I, it takes me time to dig into the old medical research articles. But, boy, I found a couple. I don't think I've published all of my citations now that I found, but, but I found quite a few that made the argument early on, years ago, that, that ivermectin had this uh, anti-inflammatory uh, uh, you know, cond- uh, aspect to it and that it would work. And, by the way, I just want to point out the difference here with Omicron. What's interesting about Omicron is that when it causes problems, you know, infects people, it does, it, it's not like Delta. It doesn't go deep into the lungs. So it, it's a really upper respiratory problem with Omicron, not a deep lung problem as with 
previous variants. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. I'm I'm, I'm surprised that all the data that, that the media is going crazy about today with all of the people they say are being hospitalized uh, because of COVID. I don't believe all the data, but nevertheless, I don't expect a lot of people to die of late-stage COVID because Omicron shouldn't be causing these, these real serious lung problems. Yeah, that's what most of the data seems to suggest. And yet they're still panicking, us, panicking at everybody and, you know, telling us that, you know, it's going to be the worst moment of the pandemic. Bill Gates uh, predicted that Omicron would make, you know, Delta look like nothing. This is going to be the very worst of the pandemic because of Omicron. And, you know, you wonder whether that's actually more, you know, what he wanted to happen. Uh, right. You know, he, he and his uh, Fauci and those guys are, you know, they're having the time of their lives. This is what they've spent decades preparing for. Uh, you know, if, if it didn't happen by chance, they would have wanted to make it happen. Well, I guess right. we don't have to get into that speculation. But, um, you know, I put up I put up two articles, I think, today. I don't know whether you've seen the, my last two articles, but I just want to point out that my view on Omicron again is that it's this mass hysteria that has no basis in terms of medical science that Omicron should not be feared. In fact, one of my favorite experts, uh, Harvey Rush from Yale University, you know, he, he believes, I think, I'm accurately saying this, that we ought to let Omicron go through society because we'd be better off if we let Omicron invade us all and, and people would gain natural immunity. Very, very few people would ever get seriously ill. And that the way to end the pandemic, if we don't get any new terrible variants, is through Omicron, you know, going rapidly through society, all globally speaking even. So that, that's the reality that I think exists. I think they're trying to induce panic because it's, again, the old thing about if they produce enough fear. And by the way, they need the fear because they're still pushing the vaccines and the boosters. And that is absolute insanity because all of the data shows us that these vaccines and boosters do not work. And they certainly, what's most interesting, and I have lots of data on this, that they especially don't work against Omicron. They actually work better against Delta. But now that Omicron is the dominant variant, it's, I, have, I have data from three different countries now showing showing absolutely clear data, showing that these vaccines and boosters are very much less effective against Omicron. Yeah, I saw some of this, too. I, you know, I subscribe to a number of the substacks that deal with the, the science of this. Uh, there's, you know, there's Steve Kirsch yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and Alex Berenson. And, and they've been saying that the data from like Israel and the UK and Denmark, places where they have public health authorities that actually collect all the data right. and make it relatively transparent, unlike the US, and that's what I was talking about with Merrill Nass in the first hour, that those places are showing that it looks like the vaccine efficacy is dipping into negative efficacy territory uh, yes. with, with Omicron. That is, you're actually more likely to get it if you're vaccinated than if you're not. It takes a few months. You don't go into negative until, you know, usually a few months. But my next article, in fact, will be on negative vaccine efficiency because there's so much good data now that we have about this. And people ought to know what that means. When we say negative you know, vaccine efficiency, it means you're more likely to get infected because you've been vaccinated. Well, that, that's pretty crazy. But 
it, as, as I've read, you know, from my reading of, of these uh, critical experts who've been contesting the established narrative, as well as, of course, hearing and seeing the established narrative all over the place, it, it looks like up until Omicron, uh, there was some negative efficacy during the first couple of weeks, possibly up to a month after vaccination. That is, you get vaccinated and you're actually a little worse off COVID-wise for two weeks to a month. Then there's what Alex Berenson calls the happy vaccine valley from month one through maybe month five, if you're lucky, maybe six, if you're really lucky, where, yeah, your chances of actually being hospitalized or killed uh, by COVID, which are really probably not very high to begin with, uh, are even considerably lower. And then it wears off and suddenly you're pretty much back where you were, where, where you started in less than a year. And so with, with Omicron, it looks like this whole thing happens even faster and, and worse. That is, you're not after just like three months, as you said, you're worse off than when you started. It sounds like maybe a, a roller coaster I don't want to get on. Yeah. Well, that's why they keep pushing every, every day I hear, you know, uh, certain countries are now talking about three, four, or more booster shots. This thing has no end in terms of making money uh, for the vaccine companies. But the thing I want to point out, you mentioned two guys. I get this. I get their stack, uh, sub-stack things, too. And a lot of what they say is bullshit, especially Steve Kirsch. I I, I don't like to go public too much against him, but, boy, he says some really awful things. Give me an example or two of the most important uh, things that you would disagree with. Okay, I'll give you a concrete example because I already put out an article uh, one of my latest articles where I got good CDC data that nobody else apparently paid attention to, and I actually could calculate uh, excess deaths. And excess deaths meaning how many more people have died during the pandemic than before the pandemic, okay? So then you have people like Steve Kirsch who is talking, putting out these wild numbers about how many people have died from vaccines. And he really puts out some extremely high numbers, like the one he loves to put out is 400,000 people dying from vaccines. Well, I think no, that's no, ridiculous. most recently he said over 150,000. And I ran that down no, no. in the first hour, and she thought that was uh, probably as, as reasonable an estimate as you could find. Well, I, I, I've used 150,000 myself, but no, if you read all of his materials, Steve Kirsch keeps pushing 400,000. Okay, now I did my own calculations. It's in a new article of mine. I actually found this obscure page on the CDC website that has absolutely terrific data. And I'm very critical of CDC, but there are a few types of data that CDC really knows about. And, And on this page that I found, they had the data for the total number of all cause deaths uh, in the last two years of the pandemic. And they actually could calculate also the excess deaths, the, the percentage of excess deaths. And those numbers combined with a few other of their numbers allowed me to calculate what the total number of excess deaths, non, I want to emphasize this, non-COVID excess deaths during the two years of the pandemic. Okay, 400,000 is the number that I calculate, and let me explain, most of that is explained by what we call collateral deaths. Those are all the people that have died 
indirectly because of the pandemic. People who didn't get normal good health care, people who committed suicide, homicide, etc. You know, all these myriad problems, many people have died. And so my number of 400,000, and that would include some vaccine deaths also, although I think a lot of the vaccine deaths are somehow counted in bizarre ways by hospitals as COVID deaths. Yeah. Uh, but my number of 400,000 total for two years is a very good number that nobody else has used this CDC data that I found to get do that kind of calculation. So for the 400,000 non-COVID excess deaths in these two years, but how does that bear on Steve Kirsch's estimate for the uh, for the vaccine deaths, where he says at a minimum 150,000 people, and, and then you've said I don't have times. a problem. I don't have a problem that it might be as high as 150,000, but believe me, I could bring out three or four times that he has said in writing 400,000 is the number he likes to use. So he keeps pushing 400,000 in many of his uh, his posts uh, and 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 uh, podcasts, etc. Uh, so it's not 400,000, that's for sure. Uh, it, it might be 150,000. I, I I've looked at three analyses that did come that did the calculations and came to a number like 150,000. So I, and I've used that myself as saying that could be realistic. And by the way. It's consistent with my calculation of a total of 400,000 for the two years. Well, his methodology for getting that number is not so much to look at the generally you know, dubious uh, all, all cause death estimates, but rather to look at the VAERS data and then figure yeah, out yeah. What, well, is the, what is the multiplier that you need to apply. I know. I, I, believe me, I, I follow what he does. I, I, I follow it all the time. And I think he's a little bit insane, personally. Uh, I don't want to use VAERS data. Trust me on this. I have, a, I have the link in my last article. You can go to the CDC page yourself. The one thing that CDC does know, they actually do have good records about how many people have actually died in the United States. I'd rather use that data, okay? They have that. And they compared that data for the last two years to their own data on how many people have died in previous years, several years actually, and so we, we they they knew what the difference was in total in terms of total excess deaths. Okay, so then you have to do some other calculations, dig a little deep into that, and then you, as I did, you uncover what the truth is. A lot of it is explained obviously by by COVID deaths, but not all of it, and certainly not 400,000 as 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 Kirsch keeps talking about from vaccine deaths by themselves. That's just nonsense. I suppose you could argue that if there were 400,000 vaccine deaths, which would have begun at the beginning of 2021, yes. then then we would have seen a huge jump in the number of non-COVID uh, deaths in, in 2021. And yeah. Have we seen, have the numbers for 2021 come in yet for all-cause deaths? Yes, yes. I, that's the, go look at go look at my last article. Uh, click the link that I give to the CDC page, which nobody else has paid any attention to. By the way, I found it by accident, and and you could check the data yourself. Uh, the data is there for 2020 and 2021. Okay, and, and are you so, sure that's reliable? Because I, I've heard before yes. uh, from other guests that the CDC uh, initial 
numbers on all-cause mortality get, get adjusted for about six months as the actual reports come in because they're using a bunch of estimates uh, to generate the numbers, and then they don't actually get the real numbers until these well, until they come in. You know, you can always you can always be critical. I think this data that I found looks very accurate to me. I think it's I think it's good data. Obviously, there's always you know you can always raise issues with with the data, but I think what I found is good. I think my calculations are sound. I I posted it on two uh, widely read uh, Google Health uh, physician sites, and uh, Harvey Reich came back and he didn't have any problem with what I did. So. I think what I did is sound. Uh, I think if you went to the page and looked at the data, followed the calculations, uh, you might agree with me. Okay, so, so you're saying there were about 400,000 non-COVID excess deaths, and then how many COVID deaths in 2021? Oh, I don't remember the number offhand. It's in the, it's in the table of data. Again, mm-hmm. I, I don't have my uh, – all okay. the numbers are in this table of data that I found on the CDC side. Okay, well, I'll, I'll look at it now. Is, but it's consistent. Is, is this I, your I new article, Praise the Lord and Pass the Ivermectin? Because I have linked uh, that no, already. No, it's not that article. It's okay. it's an, uh, a much a newer article. And I can tell you that the number, because that has the total for the two years, and their total is exactly what you read about all the time. They're, they're using the COVID-related deaths. So that's 830,000 or something like that for the two years, okay? And it was more... Uh, and they're honest, the data that they had for COVID-related deaths was higher in 2021 than in 2020, which we all know has been the case. The year of vaccines, we had more COVID-related deaths, and that word related is very important, of course. So how can we square that with the, it, you know, how could you, how could there possibly have been an increase in COVID-related deaths in 2021 when number one, we had a lot more natural immunity because a lot no, more no, people I can tell you that. COVID. Number two, we had a lot of vaccine immunity, and we're told that these vaccines <laughs> work, and it and and the data seems to show they 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 work fairly well uh, from the first month through the sixth month. So, given that there was more vaccine immunity and more natural yeah. immunity, well, if you stop talking, if you COVID stop deaths? talking, Kevin, I'll tell well, you. you I, I got to finish my question, then you can answer it. So, how could there have been more COVID deaths? The answer lies in the Delta variant becoming prevalent in 2021 and causing a lot of late-stage COVID disease, the kind of disease where people died all the time in ICUs. See, that, that's the difference in 2021 is the Delta variant. We didn't have that in the first year. We had it in the second year, and it's in that second year where the vaccines were not not miracle workers, they didn't stop people from dying from late stage COVID. Okay, that's the answer. Right. Yeah, they promised us that oh, if you get vaccinated, it's almost certain that you won't die of COVID. And it turned out that wasn't the case. That's true. That's exactly the point. So right. that's why I say if you look at that my article, I forget the title of it, but it's it's an article that went out I think yesterday or today. Uh, uh, and, and you got to, uh, you know, you got to use the link I put into it. That CVC page, uh, trust me, I guarantee Steve Kirsch has never seen that page. Uh, I guarantee you, all the people, Barron's, none of these people have found that page because it's a, 
it has some other data that I had to use also, by the way. It, had a, it has data on, on the severely ill COVID patients, okay? That's very important. Not just the COVID-related deaths. It has the data on the severely ill patients. Very important. That's a, a, interesting. And, and do, now, what about the issue of, like, this Delta variant, uh, where where it came from? You know, uh, Gert Vandenbosch famously predicted yep. that we might be dooming ourselves by doing mass vaccination in the middle of a raging yes. pandemic because it'll breed a nastier, virulent, more virulent variants. Well, it looks like something did breed a nastier variant, Delta, as you said. But now we've got this new Omicron variant, which is the mild variant. So how how do we make sense of this? Is, I, yeah. Did the vaccines have something to do with it? Yeah. Well, well what's interesting, and people, you know, I, I, I published the, an article. I'm the only one, again, the only one that follows the research of a French scientist. And I've done at least one article, maybe two articles about this guy. And... <laughs> One of these guys who does deep, deep research, and he calculated for all the variants uh, what he called the transmissibility index, okay, by looking at the molecular structure, the atomic structure of the variants. And what he found was just incredible because he was the first guy to point out, he did his calculations early enough where he actually predicted how bad Delta would be. But then he, when Omicron came along, he did his same calculation, same kind of analysis for Omicron. And what he discovered was Omicron was so profoundly different than all the other variants. Not only did it have a lot of mutations, but the nature of the mutations was extremely complex. Many of them were canceling out each other. It was just just a mishmash, just a crazy situation of mutations, but one of the things his analysis showed was that it, by itself, was really not very transmissible. But what also he predicted accurately was that the vaccines would not work on it. Remember, we said earlier we now have the data to show this guy, this guy, this French scientist is, is just a miracle worker in terms of research, because he explained actually in writing why the vaccines would not work on Omicron. And the reason why people say it's so transmissible, it really isn't because it's more transmissible simply by itself. It's that because all of the vaccinated people on the planet, all those vaccines are not working against Omicron because of the nature of the mutations in Omicron. So it seems like it's transmissible, but it really isn't in a sense. It only seems that way because the vaccines and boosters are not being very effective against Omicron. Now, that's interesting, but it kind of cuts against what Gert Vandenbosch was warning us about. He was suggesting no. that, that by evading vaccine immunity, that it would create worse variants. Well, he, he was right. No, yeah. I, I don't disagree with what he's saying. It just turned out <clears throat> that Omicron... <laughs> You know, whether you say it's worse, it really isn't worse. Something worse may come along. But Omicron, what the French scientists found out, it was an incredible new variant, no doubt about it. The, 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 the nature, the scope of, of the mutations was n- absolutely new. And so it doesn't go against what the other scientists are saying. It just turns out 
that because of the nature, the, the real specific nature of the mutations, okay, it explains a couple of things. And it, mostly what it explains is why the vaccines are less effective against Omicron than they were against Delta. It is a strange variant, but again, if you look into the, the research by the French scientists, which nobody seems to do, I'm the only one. I have never seen anyone reference this French scientist. I'm the only one. His name is so Fantini. Can you, re- can you reveal the name of the mysterious French scientist on this radio show? Well, it's Fantini is his last name. Fantini, I and think. It sounds name. Italian. Uh, no, it's, he's French, actually. And, uh, and again, I've, I've done articles where I've, I've give the, give the, uh, citations, the links, so people can read his research. Uh, it's fascinating research. It's very difficult research to follow. It's very sophisticated. It's deep, deep molecular analysis, okay? Hmm, that might be higher than my uh, pay grade. Um, <laughs> it's higher than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. I only took, uh, I think, one or two college chemistry courses, uh, so, and certainly no biochemistry. So I'm not uh, not going to be able to to try and argue with that guy. However, but you, uh, you know, just read the conclusions, read the discussion. Yeah. You can't, you, you know, you can't follow the details, but you can follow the discussion and right. conclusions. Of course. So it's interesting that this uh, this Omicron variant seems almost like a self-spreading vaccine. Remember, we heard about they were, they were talking about possibly unleashing self-spreading vaccines as a mm-hmm. one possible solution to pandemics like COVID. And suddenly along comes this mild variant that may very well be contributing to herd immunity by stimulating people's immune systems against uh, COVID uh, in general. Uh, and that uh, there's speculation this could even end the the pandemic. And one wonders, you know, with all of those mutations, uh, normally, as I understand the way evolution works, is you don't get like lots and lots of mutations that just happen to work out really well happening all at once. Usually, you know, just by chance, every every mutation is just a roll of the dice. And so yeah, sure. the, the, the odds of, of, lo- of a large number of mutations working together well uh, to enhance fitness is very, very low. So this thing, this Omicron has this huge number of mutations and it works really, really well to evade vaccines. And uh, wait a minute, how, how did that happen? Uh, I wonder if, you know, if there's a mathematical analysis of how improbable this is and whether it's conceivable that somebody actually well, you, you gotta, you gotta, well you, when you look at the, the, the French guy's research and you see the long list of variants that we had, we've actually had a lot of variants and people seem to forget this. You know, people only talk about Delta. Now they talk about Omicron. Well, let me assure you, there were six or eight or 10 variants between the original Wuhan variant. Okay. And Omicron, there were a long list of variants. So it's not so strange that eventually a variant comes along. Omicron, again, is, it just, it has a lot of nuances. Again, it, it, vaccines don't work great against it, but also it doesn't cause deep lung problems, which is kind of interesting. It doesn't mean people, and it doesn't cause severe illness. The vast majority of people, as you know, in Africa, elsewhere, all the research shows you, it's the, the it's mild symptoms. If you people, I have heard directly from conversations I've had with people, they feel ill for a couple of days, like it's a bad cold. Okay, that's Omicron, bad cold for a few days. Why we're seeing all of this hospitalization? That's a whole other topic of why people are going to hospitals. And by the way, that is a sick thing that the government is promoting. I'm telling you because that is about promoting fear. 
and getting people to get more vaccination and more boosters. But people are going to hospitals for all the wrong reasons. I was reading a ton of data today, Kevin. I don't know whether you uh, are aware of this. Most of the people into hospitals, U.S. hospitals today, are entering the hospital not because of COVID. They're entering the hospital with other medical problems. And then what happens? Everyone who goes into the hospital gets tested for COVID. So then they discover that all of these people who've gone to the hospital for other reasons now are being categorized because they're going to make more money by doing this. They're going to categorize them as COVID patients. COVID That's what's going on. Wow. Huh? So, so, so the, the number of COVID hospitalizations turns out to be highly deceptive. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. <laughs> right. Right. And, it's all and, about money. And, it's and always some, about money. Right. To some extent, the COVID deaths probably are deceptive, too. As you pointed out, the all cause deaths, theoretically, that should be those should be the numbers that we can trust better than these other numbers. Right. Except I have, again, some data on severely ill patients versus COVID-related death. you got to make that distinction. It's true, and I've said this in many articles. Yes, lots of people, <laughs> the, the, the death numbers that you see reported in the daily newspaper are COVID-related deaths. That's an overstatement of real COVID deaths. You know, people are dying for lots of other reasons. COVID is incidental. They, they're dying with COVID, but not from COVID. Well, what do you make of this uh, story that came out this week uh, about an Indiana insurance executive? Oh, yeah, I covered talking that. Forty percent <laughs> rise in all-cause yeah. mortality yeah. of people, working-age people, uh, yeah. and of course, a lot of folks uh, like uh, uh, like Steve Kirsch suspect yep. <laughs> this would be related to vaccinations. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, and again, it's in my article. You haven't read that new article. The new no, article no, I, I, I invite you on no, the radio no. to talk about praise the Lord and pass the ivermectin. I, I was really yeah, busy yeah. these last couple the days, one, so I missed yeah. the new one. Yeah, I, there are two after that, and one of them is where I, I do the calculations and where I do the CDC <coughs> number crunching. I, I cite the work of that insurance uh, executive, and I would point out to you, which Steve doesn't point out, that the insurance executive never gave a number of any kind except the percent increase, right? It's a Pennsylvania company, actually a relatively small insurance company in the state of Pennsylvania. He yeah. never gave any number. I thought it was Indiana. No, Pennsylvania. Okay. And he never gave any numbers. He just gave a percent, okay? Steve went crazy over it like a lot of other people did. I, I, it's in my article. I, I, it's part of my article. But, again, I just use it as a way of getting into the story of let's, let's look at excess deaths because that's what he, what he talked about. He, and he actually did say, I read every word of what he said, he did say that his, his numbers, were, I mean, or his data, I should say, was for non-COVID deaths. So that was very important. So what he was talking about, Kevin, was what we call collateral deaths. These are what I talk about all the time also. All these people who have died, okay, uh, drug overdose, suicide, mental stress, not getting good health care because they can't see their doctors, whatever, okay? That's what he was talking about, collateral deaths, okay? That's what you've got to understand. But he never gave any number. He gave a percent increase. 
I don't know. Maybe the percent makes sense. <laughs> we know that collateral deaths are very real. Uh, I had one study done a year ago that had predicted a million collateral deaths, and that was out of a research institute at the University of Washington. But, again, my calculations, I think, uh, you know, could it be higher than what I'm calculating? It's possible. All these things are rough, but Steve went crazy over what the everyone went crazy over what the insurance executive said because people are not paying enough attention to collateral deaths. The government, does not, the CDC, you know, never talks about collateral deaths. Really, our public health system is a total failure. If they were talking about real public health, they would be telling people how to do all kinds of things that would prevent more collateral deaths, a healthier lifestyle, right? Exercise, good eating, take your vitamin C's and D's and all of that stuff. That's how we would, could address collateral deaths too and get better access to public, to, to health care in general. I have more problems today getting an appointment to see my doctor than I ever had in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, getting through the layers of bureaucracy to deal with the doctors is almost uh, not worth it. At least, you know, if you can keep yourself reasonably healthy, you're better off not even going through it. But, but Joel, I, I did look. It's been a while since I, I got involved in that question about the uh, overall all-cause death numbers. And there was a debate about that. There was that uh, John Hopkins scientist, uh, was it Germaine or somebody, a, a French name, who wrote that piece suggesting that uh, the the well, what was it that the, the uh, all cause deaths were were uh, very you know di- different from uh, from what we had heard and and anyway looking at those numbers I w- I was having a hard time trying to figure out how the, specifically what were these collateral deaths because if you add them up like I you know I don't remember the exact numbers for these different causes of death like suicide and this and that and the other and homicide and and right. yada 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 you add up all these numbers. And I, you, you say there were four hundred thousand in a year, but two years. Like, as I, when, I, when I looked at, at the actual specific numbers of the causes of death, uh, it was hard to imagine how that would happen because, like, every year there's something like only like twenty thousand suicides and you know ten thousand alcohol overdoses, whatever. The, the numbers of of these types of deaths that you would think might go up during uh, COVID was nowhere near high enough to give us a total number of four hundred thousand. No, so you're wrong. Did you, did you look at that? Yeah, and you're wrong. They are high enough, actually. When you, but you got to look very broadly. The trick in in understanding collateral deaths is having a very broad view of them. Okay, so these are the people who die because of all the economic impacts of the pandemic. People who lose their jobs, uh, you know, lose their businesses. People who have been killed in riots of all kinds during the pandemic. There are so many you know, categories. I can't, I can't be very many of those. Oh, there are lots. I think there are lots. I think talking, remember, my number is for two years, 400,000, and that includes, I will include in that, the vaccine deaths also, okay? So then you start, well, if you want to believe it's 150,000, okay, so take 150 off of my 400. And then what are you left with? I think you're left with a very reasonable number. Again, I have looked at studies on collateral deaths. There are some very detailed studies out there that I doubt very many people have looked at. And there are so many categories 
of collateral deaths. I mean, it's just rather amazing. Again, in the biggest category, by the way, which I think you're having a hard time putting your hands around here, is all the people during two years of the pandemic who couldn't get normal health care. So they didn't get their cancer prevention. They didn't get their cancer treatment. All kinds of other serious disease treatments they did not get. So what happens? They end up dying, okay? Maybe not immediately. Maybe it takes months or maybe it takes a year. But we've had incredible numbers of people who didn't get their normal health care, okay? They didn't get their normal medical treatments. Those are the people that are part of the collateral death universe. It's a very, in fact, in my view, it's the biggest part of what I talk about collateral deaths. It isn't suicides, you're right. It isn't that. It isn't drug overdose. It is what I'm talking about. It's the lack of good, normal, what we consider normal for most people, health care, medical care. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I could sort of imagine it. I, I guess, you know, I'm still influenced by reading Ivan Ilyich's analysis of Western <laughs> medicine, uh, suggesting yes. that, in fact, it kills about as many people as it saves, and so the net benefit is roughly zero. Uh, the iatrogenic deaths, that is doctor-caused deaths or medicine-caused deaths, have been estimated from maybe a quarter of a million a year up to three-quarters of a million a year. <laughs> At the higher end, that would make it like the leading cause of death, more than cancer, more than heart problems, et cetera, et cetera. So, frankly, well, I, I I, I, people not seeing, not getting health care actually might not be so bad for their health. I have a hard time seeing that as being a huge cause of, uh, of this increase. Well, I, I have read a number of firsthand accounts, <clears throat> especially by cardiologists, and I have a serious heart condition, so I pay a lot of attention to cardiology. And I can tell you <clears throat> that the cardiologists absolutely uniformly have said that they, during this pandemic, they have seen astronomically higher numbers of deaths. And most of these deaths, you know, a lot of them were preventable, but people were not getting their normal health care. They weren't seeing their normal cardiologists. They weren't going in for their normal, you know, uh, tests. There's all kinds of, I've had all kinds of testing as, as a heart patient. I don't think I had any during the pandemic, though. Uh, so I'm, what I'm telling you I know is true. I know that uh, this is the biggest contributor to what we call collateral death is the failure. Because, listen, and this is common sense, the hospitals and the medical community we're too busy dealing with COVID to give adequate medical attention to no ordinary patients. They didn't get, they didn't, that's what, that's who suffered because if you didn't get COVID, then your chances were higher actually of dying because you weren't getting normal medical treatment. Mm. Wow. That's, that's paradoxical. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. That's America. So, so, right. <laughs> It's, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if I would want to rush out and get uh, Delta uh, just so I could get some medical treatment. But maybe with uh, Omicron, that would be uh, a good, you know, self-spreading vaccine thing, right? I, maybe I'm anti-vax, but, you know, a self-spreading vaccine like Omicron, I could probably deal with that. I mean, 
we're not going to be able to avoid it anyway, right? So, so, so we're getting towards the end of the show. How do you see this playing out? Will uh, Omicron basically infect everybody and raise the immune levels up to a point that we'll be getting herd immunity anytime soon, or will this nightmare continue forever? Well, I can tell you that a few of the experts that I really trust think we already have herd immunity. Uh, you know, one of the Peter Alexander, one of the great uh, researchers out there, he thinks that uh, uh, two thirds of the country already has natural immunity, and then if you add on all of the people who've been vaccinated, which is another 200 million or so, we've already reached, in theory, herd immunity. Well, in theory, but then in practice, um, you know, we have, the cases are, are off the charts. You know, people are still being hospitalized, et cetera. Again, but I've told you, again, follow my logic. What you're hearing about today in terms of these high hospitalization rates is all bullshit. It's, it's all – it's something that is not real. It's been created for you know, a lot of bad, stupid, evil reasons, but it isn't really covid it isn't pure COVID-related. Hmm. And so if, if you talk to folks who actually work in the hospitals, what do you, will they confirm your diagnosis or not? I'm afraid. I, I get these emails from doctors all the time. I have doctors telling me, a lot of them think I'm an MD because they relate to what I, I do in my publications, and they're telling me this stuff all the time, in that they and all of their associates working in hospitals are too afraid to speak the truth. Because if they do speak the truth, they will lose their jobs. And that we know is true because a number of hospital doctors, I know of at least six or seven, who have spoken the truth have lost their jobs. So we know this is the reality out there. These, these 90% or more of American physicians work for corporations, mostly hospitals and, and healthcare organizations. If they speak out, they will lose their jobs, okay? They are not speaking out. That doesn't mean they don't know the truth. I am speaking the truth. I have nothing to lose. And there are a few other truth tellers out there that you can trust. I don't trust everyone who speaks out loudly. I don't, I don't like Berenson. I don't like uh, Steve Kirsch. I don't like a lot of the people who have a big audience because they also uh, – I, I, I read their stuff and you cannot, I cannot follow. Their citations are terrible. Their links are awful. Uh, I, I read some of the stuff they, they reference, and they're not being honest and accurate. Berenson is terrible about this. He is not accurate about what he says, even though he cites some sort of, you know, research article or report. He's not honest. I think he's because he's, he's rushing through things. Same, same with Steve Kirsch. They, they don't spend enough time to be honest about what they're talking about. Hmm. Well, that's a harsh critique. Uh, maybe I'll have to invite those guys on to uh, defend themselves at some point. Uh, <laughs> as far as, as the people working in the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, you yep. say they're afraid of losing their jobs. Absolutely. I, I wonder, you know, what percentage of them, uh, like, well, you know, I, 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 uh, my brother is an MD who's in the middle of this and who takes a very establishmentarian line on all these things. And uh, I don't think he's just lying to me because he's afraid of losing his job. And and I also know some other folks who have family in medicine who have the same situation where their family is all very much, they believe the establishment narrative on this, like Gordon Duff, the senior editor at Veterans Today, his wife is a nurse and he has a bunch of family members working in different medical settings. 
and they pretty much all apparently are drinking the Kool-Aid. So my question would be, what percentage of these people you're talking about who are keeping their mouths shut because they're afraid of losing their jobs are consciously aware that there is a problem, that the narrative is not true? And what percentage of them uh, are actually subconsciously blocking that knowledge because, well, it's hard for a man you know, to know something if right. uh, it's going to stop his uh, paycheck from coming in? Well, I'd like to introduce a phrase that you might remember from the 60s, and that is cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance will explain why a lot of these uh, MDs and nurses, professionals, are not able to deal with the truth. It is a problem of cognitive dis dissonance. They have coming in one ear the official story from the government and the public health establishment, and coming in the other ear is reality. The two do not mesh. It's causing cognitive dissonance. And add on to that the risk of losing their jobs, and then you explain what I'm talking about, why nobody in the professions is speaking out. They either have cognitive dissonance, or they are too afraid, or both, of losing their jobs. But they have cognitive dissonance. I have no doubt. I have conversations with my own physicians, and I can tell that they're not, I've asked them directly, are you reading the research? I mean, I'm studying the fucking research every day. Do you think practicing physicians have enough time to read the research that I'm reading? They don't. Kevin, that's the reality. Your yeah. practicing doctor cannot follow the research. Yeah, that, frankly, after some conversations with my brother, the MD, I'm starting to think that I have a lot more time to follow the research than he does. Because uh, I have to do this radio show. Oh, boy. Um, yep. So maybe when I do my disclaimer on False Flag Weekly News saying I'm not a medical doctor, uh, that's actually maybe a good thing. People should be coming to me for treatment. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know about treatment. Yeah. <laughs> they might they might believe what you say, though. <laughs> right, right. Medical advice. Yeah. Normally I, I say uh, we don't offer medical advice here, but you're, what, what you're suggesting is maybe we are actually offering better medical advice than most of the doctors. And well, speaking of absolutely. which. Absolutely. Yeah, we only have a yeah. minute left here. Uh, okay, so let's say people agree with you that ivermectin is probably a, a reasonably effective prophylactic and treatment. What's how can people get their hands on that stuff? It's it's horse pills that'll kill you, and, and you're no, you're no, not no. I, you know, defrocked for prescribing it. How do we get it? There's an article on my Substack page. I put out an article because I had so many questions about this. There's an article where I give all the practical information, and I give the names and the contact information for two companies that I have used successfully to get all my ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and I just got a package the other day. I'm, I got a package in of the antidepressant drug that you probably have read about, uh, whose name is Scotia. Yeah, 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 that, that, uh, that looks good. Uh, okay. And, and, yep, yep. So it's all... All those companies in my article on my on my uh, Substack well, What's page. the name of the article? Which article? Oh, I don't remember anymore. I, I do so many articles, Kevin. But well, the, so we have to pour over all of your, your, your Substack to find it? Yeah, I mean, you just, people just got to go to my Pandemic Blunder newsletter on Substack. And if you scroll through, you know, it has all the articles, you'll find one <clears throat> that has practical, <clears throat> excuse me, practical information. And the two companies I give there, I've used successfully a number of times. Okay, great. And, and roughly, when did you publish that article? So we'll sort of know oh. where to look. <clears throat> it 
maybe a month ago or two months ago, I should get oh, Okay, now. so it's, it's great. Yeah. So we don't have to go back yeah. through the whole the whole thing. Okay, no, no. sounds good. Well, thank you, uh, Joel Hirshhorn. I appreciate your uh, fresh mind and willingness to critique all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, that's why I keep bringing you back to the radio show. So keep up the great work, and God bless. Same to you. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. That's Dr. Joel Hirshhorn. He's a metallurgical engineer, not a medical doctor, but he knows how to do research, and he may be doing better research than your doctor. I don't think I'm allowed to say that on YouTube, but thank God we're not on YouTube. This is Kevin Barrett on Truth Jihad Radio, hitting the end of our first live broadcast of 2022. And it sounds like you made it to the end, too. Congratulations. 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 Congratul